welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast with your hosts, Trisha Curtis, CEO of Petro Nerds, and Ethan Bellamy. This show combines upstream and midstream expertise in a Rocky Mountain showdown, brought to you by Digital Wildcatters. Okay, hello everyone, and welcome to the Petro Nerds Podcast. My name is Trisha Curtis. I am the CEO of Petro Nerds, and I um, am very pleased today uh, to be joined by a guest. And this guest is very special. I, I saw her speak at um, at the SPE conference in Tennessee a couple of weeks ago and was extremely impressed, not just by her speaking, but all the, the many, many questions that she asked, which was actually more than I did, which is very impressive. Um, so I this is episode, today is September 3rd, 2021. This is episode 27. And today we are honored to have um, Yoshi Pradhan, the senior, um, senior reservoir engineer at Endeavor Energy Services. And I'm pretty sure I botched her name. She also has a full name. I'm going to let her introduce herself and give us a little bit of background on her. And then we will, I know that folks are probably very interested in Endeavor because Endeavor is a private company, but we have a lot of different things we're going to touch base on this podcast. Endeavor is just sort of one of them. So Yoshi, without further ado. Thank you so much, Tricia. I do want to make a slight adjustment. It's Endeavor Energy Resources. Endeavor Energy Services is another oh, yes. facet of our company too, but yep. I just want to make sure that I, this is a corporate one. So I work for Endeavor Energy Resources. As Trisha mentioned, I work as a senior reservoir engineer. I've been there for about three years. For my past lives, I worked for an organization called University Lands. So for those of you who may not know University Lands, it's about 2.1 million acres and 1.4 million of them are leased out to about 280 operators. And there's about billions of dollars worth of revenues that goes to the UT and Texas A&M systems. So I worked as a reservoir or production engineer there. And I also worked for Devon Energy as a production engineer out in Midland, Texas. Graduated from the University of Texas in 2015 with my bachelor's in petroleum engineering. Maybe not be the reason why I'm wearing my burnt orange. And then I got my master's at Texas A&M University in 2020 in petroleum engineering as well. That's a little bit about myself. Oh, that's awesome. No, that's great. And I saw that on I saw that on your LinkedIn profile, but um, to the audience uh, at the so at the at this SPE technical workshop, this was on unconventional completions, and um, I believe it was unconventional completions, and really it was on well bore simulation and and the spacing of wells, and um, it was a we're gonna sort of I wanted to have have Yoshi on the podcast so we could sort of recap this to a degree because there was a lot talked about and it it, it is very technical um, and some of the stuff I understood to a significant degree and other stuff is very, very much in the weeds. Um, and I'm not an engineer by training. So I was probably the no only non-engineer, I'm guessing, in that in that room of folks. But it was a, a very good workshop and Yoshi just sort of crushed it. Um, and she asked extremely good questions and was just on the mark on every speaker um, and had excellent questions. And then she and and then she actually closed it and was the was like the last speaker on the last day. Um, and did an excellent job. So I just wanted, I, I was extremely impressed and was very eager to have her on the podcast. So, and really fortunate that she agreed to actually join the podcast. Well, I really appreciated all the comments. There's been a lot of great content that was covered in the SP workshop that we're probably going to talk about more today. So I'm really looking forward to that conversation. Yeah. So I think firstly, and I did say, I think I had Endeavor Energy Services on the brain because when I was flipping through the website, I realized that there is a services side and my brain just just stuck on the, yes. Yeah, so Endeavor Energy Resources. And just to give an overview, I mean, you guys have 350,000 
net acres in the Permian Basin. You're largely on, you're basically just east of Odessa, north and south of, of Odessa. And um, you have four major counties and you have 11 rigs running right now. So you are, you guys are very active right now and have been, you've been ramping up activity and increasing basically since the bottom of the trough in July of last year. That right? is correct. So we have, we actually call it our core six in our website. There's about six counties that we operate very actively and that we're very focused on in terms of development. And we do have a lot of rigs running. We're also very much a growing company. So you may see on our LinkedIn webpage or LinkedIn site that we're always looking for people to join our talented team. As far as the activity, so that, that's just giving you some insight on to if you want to join our team, go for it. We do have openings that are available. As far as the activity goes, we're definitely ramping up in activity. We're definitely trying new things in terms of how we can optimize our development and how we can really make the make the most out of what we have in, in our area. Yeah. Um, well, I saw you. I did see that you had job posting on your website. I'm always looking for some perfect part-time role for chief economist. I didn't see that pop up, but you know, when that does, I'll be sure to apply. Um, you guys did have an interesting post. You had, um, there's a completion engineer, so that's the job postings. I know that Digital Wildcatters has been putting out information on, on companies that have job postings. So I definitely would recommend, and I always recommend um, private companies and actually just meeting Yoshi, I would say it's worth a shot because, and you guys are, you know, you guys are private and you're a growing company. And, you know, I have talked about on the podcast before about this, you know, the bifurcation and differ differences in the business in terms of public and private operators. And truthfully, I think that you have an immense amount of flexibility as a private company. I mean, uh, it's not that we're going to get into the weeds on anything proprietary and, and, and talking about your completion designs or anything, but I think just in general as, as private companies, you know, given you know, the regulatory burdens and given just the everything that's happened over the course really of 2020 and 2021, as a private company, you just have a, a lot more flexibility in terms of how you, one, respond to prices and how you uh, move around activity. And also, I think hugely uh, potential regulatory concerns for SEC filings and everything. It's just not something that's there uh, for a private company. And therefore, you guys are able to focus as I'm saying you guys in particular, but private companies in general are able to focus more on operations. Um, and I think we see that coming out in the data when you see the splits, you know, in the the recount isn't yet dominated in the Permian by privates, but it's getting there. And I would say when you do look at completions and well starts, it, it is coming. Those well starts are looking uh, pretty tight with, you know, private operators and public operators. And to me, that's saying a lot. Um, and that's saying the momentum shift uh, toward private operators, which also is big in terms of you know, the shift in how service companies and stuff work with you. And you guys seem to have your own service entities. So that's a whole a very cool thing and makes it makes it probably work well with your company. But it just is a from a from a market dynamic, I think it's very fascinating. And I, I don't think that trend is going away anytime soon. I really appreciate all that. Yes, we are growing. We're vertically integrated. And as you've mentioned, we've been very fortunate to have a very nimble team and a very talented team that's worked extremely hard to get the results that we're seeing today that you probably see in in the public data. So, I am. It, it's it's a very it's a very hardworking team. We've put in a lot of work to get to where we are today with the with the with the rise in production, with rising, with rising and with rising activity. And are you? Let's say I knew what what's your roughly your barrels per day and gas per day for production. Do you have a rough number? I yeah, we've reached a record number. Like you've probably. You've probably seen it. We've reached our record number of both like above a hundred thousand already. So okay, that's what I thought. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. 
So yeah, a good, decent amount of production. And this is the this is the thing is that these are. I mean, so if you're if you're pulling all these private operators and you're looking at these production increases, which is I think that you know I think EIA and other entities are starting to show what their estimates are because the data lags for production and it's definitely creeping back up to you know Permian production in general is growing and we're seeing that so all super awesome and, and exciting stuff um, and the fact that you guys have integrated services probably means that you can um, and you do you guys use the the services that you list on your website you guys use them in part of your operations correct. We use them as part of our operations as well. Okay, awesome. Yeah, that's very cool. Very, very cool. So, okay, so I think we should switch gears a little bit um, now that we know that what what the date is um, and that this, so this SBE conference or workshop took place like two weeks ago. It was in Franklin, Tennessee. So it was way far away for both, um, for both Yoshi and myself. Everybody had to get on a plane and go to this place. And I learned, because someone did comment, I was like, why is this in Tennessee? And somebody did comment that, the reason that they like having these away from places like Denver or Houston is because that if you don't, people, it's like a th- it's a three-day conference that people will end up not showing up one day. They'll just stay in the office because their boss told them to work. I don't know how true that is, but it did seem that everybody was there and everybody was participating for three and, you know, two and a half full days, which I thought was, it was quite a bit. I agree. We maxed out about 80 attendees for that conference, which was really nice, especially for it's a good size for networking, but everybody was there for all three days. It didn't seem like anybody yep. skipped any day and people were all engaged. It was a very engaging workshop. And I strongly suggest that for those of you who are interested in attending those workshops, they're nice destinations. I mean, got to hang out in Nashville for a little yeah. bit. So that was great. Yeah. yeah. And they, it, 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 it gets you away from the workplace for a little bit, but it, it's not just a vac- it's not just the vacation, but it's also a great learning experience too. Yeah, I love it because it is a, it's a different way for me to learn and you can only um, you know consuming I know you you've referenced some you referenced some SPE papers and I, I want to get into some of those because those are definitely public and we can talk about those. Um, so what's cool is especially a lot of a lot of private companies and a lot of public or public companies do put out these you know SPE, which is Society for Problem Engineers, these papers, and then they're often referenced. And so um, this workshop and workshops, I would say the re- I, I think they're better than a lot of these conferences because they're like you said they're more intimate. It's it's a smaller group and. Um, this one in particular, I'd went to one in 2014 and it was a Bakken completions workshop and that was in 2014 here in Denver. And that was, it was excellent. Um, and it was, it was really heated, um, in terms of the dialogue and the debate and very, lots of talk about refrax, you know, lots, all the big companies in the Bakken, but it was completely different than what we had today. And I know that, or I'm sorry, the, what we had two weeks ago. And I know there was also one in which I wasn't able to attend. There was one in California two years ago. Uh, pre-COVID, which I was told was was excellent. Um, I'm not sure if you went to that um, or how this one compared, but uh, the point is, I think that if you're if you're looking to learn something a little outside the box, these workshops are excellent, um, and they're also you know folks are really candid and 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 kind. And to me, it's it's more important actually to spend time with with the engineers and just the CEOs because you get the same high level uh, stuff from CEOs all the time that are telling you about the company, and it's it's the stuff about what the operations that I think is really valuable um, and important, and I think a lot, a lot of learnings from each other. But my big takeaways, um, or at least one of them, and I'd like you to sort of jump in and correct me. I'd love to know what what just your thoughts on. I was going through my notes, you know, before this this call, but I would love to know what your thoughts are on the big takeaways because I'm sure they're going to be far more nerdy and a little bit uh, and more insightful. But I had a couple of big takeaways, um, and it was that 
extremely low cost diagnostics was just a, a big theme. So, you know, fiber was certainly mentioned a lot, but it was interesting in how the use of fiber optics was mentioned. A lot of folks had papers in which they had done ran fiber optics in a single well, or maybe a few wells, but largely it was tests on a single well. And then um, it was sort of like the, a lot of the commentary was, okay, we ran fiber optics on this well, and then we did, you know, we completed wells near it. And then we used this sort of as this test well to tell us all this information. And then basically there was a lot of admitting that we're not doing fiber anymore. Would you this drop in fiber, which I didn't even know was a thing, which is cool. And I'm sure is, is much cheaper. But so there was sort of that of this, like we use fiber once we use the Intel helped us inform completions, you know, how we do this. Um, and then there was the use of pressure gauges. Um, a lot of, a lot of talking about pressure gauges. And I know from my time at working in operator pressure gauges are, are really valuable, not super expensive. Um, I also thought tracers were, were talked about almost by every single presentation, but not really illuminated upon. It wasn't like, Hey, with the use of tracers and pressure gauges, we can do this. But it was sort of like, you know, drop in fiber, pressure gauges, you know, and, um, and tracers seem to be extremely valuable tools that are relatively inexpensive. Um, and that's what I thought was cool because I thought that, you know, there was a few endeavor, you, you guys spoke, um, Great Western spoke, and um, there was a couple, there was a couple of the private companies that spoke, uh, was At Atlas in, on, on the Refrax in yes. Marcellus. Yes. And very, had really, really good presentations, really succinct, and really talked about this as, and was very honest about, we're a private company, you know, we don't have the same, you know, we, we don't have these massive science budgets to do all this stuff. And so the testing, I thought, was done in a very sort of pragmatic way. Um, and you, you guys seem to have a little, a better nerdy, cooler spin on it to a degree. Um, but those, those low-cost diagnostics, I just thought were awesome. And I think I'm probably missing, um, it was the single, the, well, and I'm not sure the cost on that. I have no, the sealed wellbore pressure monitoring, that yes. seemed to be a relatively, you know, that seemed to be a little expensive in my opinion, because you're sealing that off. Um, and then the vertical, the whole, the use of vertical wells and the use of vertical testing, which I think is super underestimated. There was talks about defits, but not to the same degree. And for our listeners, I'm going to have, I'm going to have Yoshi break out some of these and talk about them. But a defit is basically for my, is like a, you know, vertical with like a mini, mini tip into your, into your horizontal. And then you sort of like do a, a frac, a little test yes. and it gives you all kinds of different diagnosis. A lot of it's for pressure, a number of different things. But to me, it's a pretty inexpensive way to get a lot of data very quickly. And that is, um, sorry, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to say you've been spot on with a lot of the takeaways that you had regarding the workshop. I mean, there were some great completion trends that were stated uh, over time for the past 10 years and where we're leading towards in those completions. For instance, there's been a convergence of two to three mile laterals, 200 feet stage length, and then about 400,000 pounds of profit per stage. There's also been talks of between primary and infill wells, that was a major component of the workshop to of parent-child mitigation. I call them primary infill wells, just to be a little bit more neutral. Yep. Not all of them are technically bad in terms of or not in terms of fracture-driven interactions, which is another term I want to talk about. That it's a more neutral term because every single time when you hear a frac hit or a frac bash, there's a negative connotation that comes with it there that that will be a detriment to the well and there is going to be something bad that happens to it when that is not necessarily the case but aside from that there have been talks on how to how to complete your infill wells after when you've completed a certain amount of wells in your in your section what do you do to those new wells how do you optimize the production of those new wells how you can adjust the intensity of those completions on those wells 
And then what kind of cluster efficiency can you assume on those on those particular wells? What kinds of fractures can you see from your defits from from the defit data that you that you that you talked about? And then what kind of responses do you get from crosswell strains from from your fiber data? And then how does that relate to how does that relate to communication? How does that relate to cluster efficiency? How does that relate to how you pumped in your job? That's some of the those were some of the. Can we pause for one second? So the only reason I want to say this is because, you know, I don't think many listeners will know what like a near well bore strain is. I think a lot of folks know, like a lot of folks know simply, you know, we know that we're putting we're putting more wells closer together. And we know this sort of the parent child dynamics that people talk about is that you had an older parent. Well, you know, you drilled that well. And then if you were as you're, you know, it's, it's very complex to have, you know, you know, 300,000 acres or 500,000 acres or whatever is a million acres. And you're trying to delineate those assets. And so you're, and you hold the acreage uh, as well. So you drill a well and then you have to, you know, it's the well's great. That's awesome. And if you're public, it gets really even harder because it's that well's good. And then you have to come back and you have to put more wells in there. And, and we know from over time, understanding that, you know, this rock is awesome. I, I, firstly, I'll just state that I never thought that, you know, I know there is near well bore interaction. Wells do communicate. We have reservoir yeah. communication, but it is something I believe fully wholehearted believe can be mitigated. And I, you know, we about two years ago, everybody lost their minds in the Wall Street Journal and everywhere with these nice drawings and presentations of, oh my gosh, these public companies were lying to us and they didn't have as many wells. They said they did. And look at these wells, they don't perform the same. And there was a lot of mistakes in understanding that. And part of that, I think, was really, it was a lot of folks in Wall, in Wall Street that really don't understand this stuff that, you know, in the level that you do for sure. And, um, and don't appreciate that it's, you know, literally they understand lateral lengths, you know, propent loadings. And then it's like, well, these wells get closer together and all of a sudden production declines a bit. And of course, there's a reality that, you know, basic reality in a reservoir, you know, if you put wells closer together, there's going to be some kind of pressure changes and there's going to be depletion and different things. But the fact that we didn't think that there was ways to mitigate that and given that, you know, how much oil we know is downhole and that, you know, the speed at which you're you're placing these um, these wells next to each other is pretty huge. And I, I think it's really interesting that that sort of talk has died away because, most of the wells we're doing today are infill wells to a degree. I mean, they're not necessarily, we're not spacing them all 400 feet apart and just jamming them together, but they're not, it's not as though they're two miles apart either. You know, we're talking about, you know, what, what on average, we heard at these, at least this, this event, there were wells from 400 feet to 800 feet. I think that seemed to be sort of a range. 400 seemed to be obviously tighter. Certainly we've widened up and a lot of folks are sort of in this 800 foot range, but I think there's a lot of folks that try to push this down closer to 600. I know EOG is a little more aggressive in, in some of their well spacing. But the point is, I think that, and you talk, this is why I really want you to talk about your presentation and what you talked about is because you get into it. Um, and I may just have, if you can, you know, I wouldn't say just simplify, clarify some of the terms like these near, you know, sure. cross, cross training. Cause um, over time I've learned this stuff, but like the stress shadowing and the near, all this near well bore stuff, a lot of folks don't understand. But basically, one of the big takeaways, and I think it was Oventive and Devin's presentations as well, of somebody had said, you know, we don't work as much on um, sequencing as we should. And I kind of thought that's a relatively basic thing of, you know, the the sequencing of these. Um, and I have a little bit of experience with a private operator. And I would say that, you know, sequencing was something I cared a lot about in how I wanted, we want we wanted the wells done as 
this one first, then this one, and knowing that the first one, you know, if that's your the impacts you're going to have as you move on. Um, and especially if you have a, even if it's your, not your well, it's still a parent well, it's still drained. Um, so if you're, if you're, you know, drilling wells next to other wells, whether they're your wells or not, you have to take that into account. And I think the better understanding of that reservoir and those qualities, the better you can sort of mitigate or offset some of those massive, you know, like, holy crap, I thought that was going to be 600 barrels per day, and it turned out to 400 barrels per day. And it just seems to me, my takeaways from this event, especially your presentation, was that, you know, it's not quite as bad. You know, you can, there are things to mitigate this. It's not like you can fix it completely, but a lot of, a better understanding of the rock does help with this. So that was That's- a lot of- yeah. No, that that's correct. As far as this, I'll break it down as far as the crosswell strain. When you break your rock and when you are putting some stress on the rock, you notice a strain on there. You notice a cyclo strain. That's what we're trying to capture. And that's what uh, the crosswell strain definitely means. But you mentioned about sequencing that I wanted to go off of that. Yes, sequencing is really important because on how you break your rock, or which well you you fracture first, that will impact the the fractures of the other well and the well that's above it, how in in how your zipper fracking. So yes, the sequencing is definitely important because you're affecting you're you're affecting how those other wells are, are going to fracture, how those other wells are are going to definitely perform. So that's and that's not, just that's something that I wanted to mention. And not just the sequencing though, right? It's the that's the actual, and you you talk about this, and I'd love to, you can give us a sort of overview of that SPE paper and your, your presentation, but it's not just the sequencing, but it's how you're actually completing those, right? So it's, um, and this is where I think that, you know, for the listeners of understanding those low-cost diagnostics, if you're using pressure gauges, if you're using fiber, if you're using this stuff, some folks are using real-time monitoring to sort of change on the fly, right? And you actually mentioned, I think you're, I, I put, quote, change on the fly. And that was something I, I think a lot of folks don't necessarily do, especially public companies may actually be bigger companies that once they put money towards something, you know, they may change, you know, if they've got test wells that they're doing, they may change a little bit down the road to mitigate something or, or alter it if they've seen something in the data. But typically changing on the fly isn't something they want to do because they want to hold things constant. And I think if you're, you know, you're really trying to to figure out how, how to best perform in a well pad. That's changing on the fly makes sense in a way from an actual performance standpoint and what you're doing from a real-time data standpoint. So maybe you could talk a little bit about that as well. Sure. I talked about changing on the fly because the rock is going to break differently throughout the lateral, obviously, because of the stress shadowing that you, that you talked about. What I ended up presenting was how to mitigate the fracture-driven interactions or these frack hits that we keep calling it as a negative connotation between a parent and a child. So a well that's already been completed versus a well that's about to be completed. How do you how do you protect them to maximize production? So some of the things on the changing on the fly, there was a technology that I want to talk about, another low-cost one. It's called shear frack. And they tried to maximize the number of shear fractures that are throughout the reservoir, throughout your throughout your wellbore. By maximizing the shear fractures, you achieve that differently with different completions, which is why on-the-fly completions is something that I would suggest that you may want to consider because the way the well is going to frack in the toe is going to be different on the way the well is going to frack at the heel. So you'd have to place your prop and place your fluid 
ramp up your profit a little bit differently throughout the throughout the wellbore. But another reason on increasing those fractures is with the existing well that's produced, that well's already been producing and that well has changed the pressure. It's depleted. So for the shear fractures to happen, that's going to be a fun art. That's what I that's what I'll I'll, I'll put Can you it. De- can you define shear fractures and then how this technology helps with shear fractures? Sure. So a shear fracture is pretty much a fracture that you can maximize your surface area. You're breaking the rock to where you are creating more surface area for oil to come out or for hydrocarbons. And maximizing to come maximizing out. the surface area is the goal of this. Well, yes. is is excellent goal. I mean, not necessarily if you're you're wanting to create near more near well bore complexity and intensity, but still in that in an instance, you're still wanting to maximize that. You just don't necessarily want your fractures to go out as far. Yes. So exactly. Exactly. Okay. So the company differentiates shear versus tensile fractures. Shear fractures, more near well bore, maximizing surface area. Tensile fractures are those pinpoint fractures that connect to the primary well or that parent well. And you want to reduce that communication between the parent well and the child well. That way you're not losing reserves for that child well. So with shear fracturing or with the shear frac philosophy, you're trying to maximize that surface area throughout the well bore. And because the well bore responds differently from heel to toe, you're going to have to change your completion design a little bit, make some slight adjustments. The challenge with some of that is it's going to have to take some real-time monitoring on the parent well, and it's going to take some real-time monitoring on the, on the child well, too. So it's definitely a team effort in terms of execution between the, to to maximize those those shear fractures and, and doing what the fracture the, on the fly. What is the you know? I think the the trickiness and even with Publix, it's too. It's that or if somebody is on the outside, if you're a New York analyst and you're thinking about this, it's that. What is the you know? Is it still is it the low cost ways of the monitoring? Right. I did when I was going through back through my notes. I did there was a couple things I had noted, and it was that you know most people had done that fiber optic once, you know, they weren't continuing with it because um, one, it didn't translate necessarily into production, production data or production diagnostics. Um, but it was that, you know, it was the abuse of pressure gauges and it was everybody and a lot of micro seismic. And even years ago, even a few years ago, there wasn't quite the ready, the, I don't know if, if micro seismic has dropped in cost significantly. And I assume it, I assume it has, um, but po- folks seem to be like, yep, micro seismic on everything. You know, that was sort of a, a, not, a, a go. So what is the actual, when you say the, the um, you know, you're, the date you're monitoring that, what do you actually monitor or what are you looking at and what kind of monitoring systems are you using? Just the production and the pressure gauges or are there other things that you can use as well that are a relatively low cost? Those are really great questions. The things that we're monitoring are pressure responses. We're measuring pressure responses, particularly at the surface for the primary well and if it's downhole, if you have a downhole gauge, that's even better. You're looking at the pressure responses. You're looking at reservoir communication between that parent well and between that child well. So those are those are the primary those are the primary responses. Now, pr- while pressure is one of the primary things that we're looking at, we're also looking at production responses too. If you see a spike in your water production for that parent well, or if you see a spike in production. From, from that parent well, then that's a sign that there is communication going on between your between your parent well and your and your child well. And that's the importance of having those pressure gauges because pressure gauges gives you a higher resolution 
between your parent well and your and your child well when analyzing the the community the potential communication when you're trying to frack your, your your child well and then actually seeing that and then actually adjusting on the fly so adjusting exactly. accordingly so if you see that so maybe is the response then you know and you don't have to get into the the proprietary stuff of you know adjusting cluster spacing and i i know we talked about this before we got on the call but i i, I do want to clarify for listeners sort of you know we hear a lot about you know pro- we know prop and per, we know lateral lengths, we know roughly prop and per foot, we know fluid per foot, you know, but we don't always know what the the stage and it's it's not publicly available. Um, but I think for for folks to understand stage spacing and cluster spacing and what's it, you know, having my nerdy brain is always thinking about what's it like two thousand feet down hole, and I'm always struggling with because even at these events, sometimes that uh, you've clarified it really well that it isn't the same. The rock is not the same along a two mile long lateral. And holy crap, when I think about when it's three miles, you know, when folks are doing these three mile long laterals now, like SM just did one and I'm going, oh my goodness, there's no way that rocks the same across it. And yet you're completing it relatively the same. You're using the same complete, you know, and so, you know, getting different production results or or trying to figure out, you know, which areas are giving us better production or or less production. I, I still think we're very much sort of in the infancy there. Um, in terms of really which areas are producing and which areas aren't, how do we mitigate that? But, you know, you're adjusting. So you're just sort of adjusting on the fly. It seems like you do that personally and you guys are able to sort of adjust. But so the methods of adjusting are just altering your completions to a degree that you're you're putting less in, you're putting more in. You know, what exactly is is that? It, to the degree that you can talk to, obviously not you don't get in anything proprietary. So the more proactive way is adjusting your completion design at the very beginning, which you talked about was cluster spacing, stage spacing. That's the more proactive piece. The on the fly piece of what you can change. I mean, the things you can control are what exactly you're pumping. So you can control your rate. You can control your sand. You can control, yeah, you can not just your soil, but you can control how much fluid. You can also control what kind of, what kind of chemical you're, you're trying to pump in in order to reduce the communication between your parent and your and your child well there's and so the many rate, the rate seems really that was a as i've always thought that but the rate seems really important too is yes. that two wells complete exactly the same way with two different rates that you're pumping in and we're talking about the rates at which you're pumping your your prop and your fluid and whatever you know it's not just a slick water it could be high viscous you know high high HVFR that people talk about, you know, high viscafr, you know, it's basically adjusting that. And and I also appreciate now more that the differences in um, you know, the minor differences in tweaking the fluid according to what ind- individuals think about the reservoir and according to how they think they should frack it with that sand. But I think it's that nuanced understanding and that better understanding of the rock and being able to adjust that. So it's like, well, if my if I'm have two wells, I'm completing exactly the same, but I'm I'm pumping the fluids and the propens at different rates. I'm gonna get I, I'm gonna get different results. It's gonna, it's it, logically to me, it's probably gonna frack the well differently downhole, or, or maybe not frack if it's a different, complete difference. Maybe not frack it well at all. So you've probably heard a lot about extreme limited entry. You've probably heard a lot about per friction, per erosion. You've probably heard about a lot of those terms, and I'm not going to get too much into the weeds, but it's definitely a function of that, which is why rate is so important. Uh, You're breaking your rock differently. You are getting your rate out of those holes differently. It's it's going to impact how your well is going to perform, which is why, yeah, the rate is definitely important and how you place your sand and your fluid in a tight rock is is extremely important, too. 
which is why I'm advocating for the on-the-fly completions, or I'm also advocating for really paying attention to how your wells are, how your offset well is responding to some of your to some of your completion to some of your completion designs. But you're absolutely right that rate is definitely very important because that is a that is how it's breaking your that's how it's breaking your rock or that's how you're creating those shear fractures as I as I as I mentioned before to maximize your surface area for production. Yeah, no, that's a that's a great um, that's a great explanation. So can you um, I think we probably covered your presentation to a degree, but can do you want to talk about the SPE paper a little bit more and expand on your your direct presentation just a little bit more before we loop back on this conference stuff? Sure. So we talked about how to mitigate the 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 parent and the child well. So the way that we did that was we did our first preloading experiment. We preloaded the parent well, so we pumped water into the parent well, into the parent well, and and it was at a low rate. You pump water into the parent well at a really low rate, and the purpose of doing it is that you're repressurizing that well. You're repressurizing that well to reach that virgin reservoir pressure. It's creating a pressure barrier. That way, whenever you're fracking that child well, you are pressure is going to go to the path of least resistance. You are creating more resistance so that parent well is protected. And we were trying to measure the technical success between the parent well and the child well by looking at you, when this was a common theme that was heard at the workshop as well, a volume to first response. So how much volume you're going to pump during your stage until you see a pressure response. We were able to see that in the initial shut-in pressure. So after your stage, what's that pressure, what's that initial shut-in pressure look like? And then through the shear fractures, how much shear fractures were created in each stage in the child well. So those were the three primary diagnostics that we were looking at. And that's what the paper was, was was covering. What we found is that from the preloading between the primary well and the, or between the parent well and the child well, we found that we maximized the number of shear fractures for the child well that was right next to the, the primary well because we created that pressure barrier. The volume to first responses, especially for the first 40 stages, was extremely high, meaning that it took more volume to pump into the into your reservoir before you saw a response. That means there was a lag time in response. There wasn't that much communication between the parent and the child well. And then in your initial shut-in pressures, they were they were on a slight rise, which means that with the stress shadowing, we've probably heard about it. That means we contained the frack. That means the frack was contained. There was near bore complex near well bore complexity, and we can ensure really good production from that child well. So that was quantifying the technical success that came from that experiment in, in the in the Midland Basin. So that was really the coverage of that paper. And we gave and a history of what we've done before in terms of we've experienced those fracture-driven interactions in, in other pads. So we need to find a way to reduce those pressure responses. And for all you engineers out there, you probably have access. So um, I know that I wrote down the number. It was SPE 194349. I have yet to go find I'm going to read it and go through in detail. But that's published. What year did you guys publish that? We published that in 2019. So that was the do nothing case. 
And the preloading paper is, and you can write this down as well as SPE 199686. I got to read And then the quantifying technical success is ERTEC 3114. Okay. So for all you guys, now I know for me, because I'm not, I have to pay for these papers on one Petro, but they're like, they're usually be like nine bucks. So I usually go ahead and pay for them and nerd out with them, but they're great for, for things like this. But so you, you explain that. And I always like to take this back. And I do, I do think some the one, the one caveat I would say to this workshop is that a lot of folks don't take it back enough to, and I'm not saying you or, or necessarily individual companies, but it's not always taken back to what's the impact on production. And I think you guys were, and actually it was I, it's something I got to say for the private companies, there was a trend and theme that this came, it came back down to economics and production. Um, with some of the publics, it was sort of these big tests, you know, things, which are great, you know, and they were doing to inform their wider, you know, their wider programs. And I think it seemed to work. Um, but we didn't hear necessarily, oh, and this is how it impact production. And part of that's because you know, they weren't allowed to disclose that, et cetera. Um, but I think when you, so when you said you, you're, you're impact, you, you've seen the pressure responses, you know, what you're doing, you're able to, you're able to create, you know, adjust that completion design to create more near wellable complexity. And I think that's something, so that, that's a takeaway that, you know, when I'm trying to explain to listeners in this podcast and another podcast is really that, you know, it's not that every child well is going to perform exactly as the parent well, or that your parent well isn't going to have some kind of, you know, it's not going to, it's not as though it's not going to feel a, an impact or a hit, um, but it's that to the degree, can you mitigate it? And overall, what does your production profile look like? And it sounds like to me um, from that, if you're allowed to, you, you don't have to give the numbers, but you were able to protect the parent well, and you were able to get a, you know, production that you're comfortable with on these child wells. Yes, that is absolutely correct. The parent well was protected, especially in terms of its production. The child well was also protected because it came back just as good as new or just as good as as well as the as the parent well, too. So we had some we had some technical successes with that, too. And we had production successes from from that preloading experiment. Yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I think that's the you know, I mean, the basics of just the you know, a dealing with the parent wells. So, I mean, I think that's folks, things that, you know, folks in New York and, and Wall Street analysts have to understand is that it isn't as though you can't do nothing. I mean, you can't just uh, just keep fracking willy nilly and everything's going to be fine. But there are low cost mitigation strategies to address this. And truly, these down, the other thing I was going to point out, and I'm curious as if you, you found this as a theme, but I definitely did, was that during the course of these two and a half days, you know, a lot of folks mentioned the time, like simply, you know, we had 2020 and it was awful and we had all this time to study this data. And so that's sort of what, you know, I, you know, cut my teeth on this unconventional shale revolution. And I know 24, you know, since basically 2008 till now. And we've had all these, you know, peaks and troughs and 2014, you know, people thought the sky was falling, but I was watching these operators and the operators were really taking the time, you know, and, and, Compared to now, it was nothing. But they were taking the time to really study what they knew and, and apply that down hole. And the same for this is that 2020, if you spent all, especially if you're a public company and probably as private as well, but if you spent all that money on a test program, you sure as hell wanted to get something from it. You know, you wanted to, you wanted to actually study and analyze that. So I think, one, there was time to actually study it and analyze it and take something away from it. And everybody had nothing to do because they weren't drilling completing wells, even though they probably should have been. Um, but they did it. And they were, you know, they took the time to study. And then really from the cost standpoint is that they, it was the, a push to say, did you take something away from this? And I think it pushed these operators to sort of 
you know, take those learns and apply them. And I would say that, you know, when you're looking at production, I mean, your guys across the board, people, it's not like production looks like crap, you know, production looks pretty good. I mean, people are not, you know, we're not seeing, you know, massive diminishing marginal returns to a degree. I think we see, you know, you, you can look at, you know, type curves for companies, you know, in basic, you know, in various data through Prism or whatever, you can look at type curves and, you know, sometimes they underperform a smidgen in years prior, but really they're in line with, you know, overall the Permian Basin is, is really punching about, is holding steady. And that's very impressive to me when we're just considering how many of these wells are infill, you know, and the, how many of these private operators. And I think a lot of pessimists, especially outside, you know, analysts from the industry really think, well, it's just gonna, you just can't work. And I think, this listening to folks like you and this whole event is that it can work. And it's, um, and I would say, you know, I'd like your assessment, but how do you, I mean, there's probably more that you would like to do. There's probably, you know, other low cost diagnostics and things you think you could probably tweak or fine tune, you know, um, and I know that's not in a perfect world. You don't have five wells to test all the time, but I imagine that there's fun things or tweaking that you would like to do that you think you could probably mitigate further. Well, there's a great presentation that actually has not been published, but there's three types of mitigation strategies. Hold on. Can you hold on one second? I'm just going to. Sure. Sorry. The puppy is just barking. There was a presentation that one of the, that Devin gave actually two years ago, and it wasn't necessarily published, but they talk about three types of mitigation strategies and you can find ways to mitigate those. You can find ways to mitigate. So there is the completion portion of it. There is you can take care of depletion and you also can take care of. So there, there's a pressure component. There's a completion component. And then there's also like a reservoir component. So there are three ways to take care of mitigation strategies. And uh, all these companies have definitely tools in their toolbox on what they want to do to mitigate the parent child inter interactions. So. As far as what kinds of tweaks that we wish we can do, I think we just have a lot of tools in our toolbox to, to just explore. And I think we as a company have done a really good job as far as exploring the, the data as well as the execution portion of it too. We try our best to we try our best to analyze the data almost as immediately as we're trying to execute as well. So the completion portion of it is the proactive piece where you're doing your cluster spacing, where you're you're adjusting your cluster spacing, you're adjusting your state spacing, you're adjusting your perp designs and everything. The depletion portion is what I mentioned is through the preloading, whether if you want to do a small preload or whether if you do want to do a large preload, which is the whole reservoir management uh, portion of it too. So those are some of the things that I just wanted to mention as far as tweaks go. I think we're still ex we're still in the exploration phase as far as what kinds of tools we want to get from our from our toolbox. Yeah, and I would say, and I I appreciate that explanation, and and I think that you know something I was I think that folks don't realize is that it's um you know you have your own set of engineers, right? You're you're an engineer for Endeavor, and you guys um you know you have your way of doing things. You're not sharing. People are. There's, we have these workshops and stuff, but it's not like everybody's sharing exactly what they're doing. And, you know, there is a lot of, uh, and I take this from from a friend of mine at Liberty who had the quote, uh, frack religion, uh, Ben Popple at Liberty Oilfield Services was, we were discussing frack religion. And it just, there is something, I would say it goes to reservoir religion and, you know, all kinds of things of how people see the rock. And I was thinking about, you know, those, um, at this workshop, we had a uh, it was kind of cool. There was a little survey thing. There was an afternoon where we did like yep. these surveys and 
oh my goodness, the variances of, you know, just how people on, I was, you know, it was stage spacing, it was completion things, and the variances of what people decided and chose was across the board. And it really, my big takeaway was, you know, holy crap, holy moly, this is the the differences in opinion is so stark in just like literally stage spacing, you know, or clusters per foot was, was pretty dramatic. And it's not that, you know, there was definitely, you know, a, a group of folks that, you know, 70% or whatever that would agree on something. But you certainly had, you know, another 30% that was thought something completely different. And to me that, you know, that's not a bad thing. That can be a really good thing, but not all this rock is the same. And even in the Permian, you know, I think we're discussing this thinking about one, one you know, reservoir, but we have m- deeper complexities, you know, especially like in the Delaware, when you really do have to be completing your, you know, multiple layers of this rock together to be mitigating, you know, these, um, to be mitigating this depletion and, and you know, pr- reservoir depletion and all kinds of things within the rock. So when you think about it and you think about all these numbers of operators doing this, there is no one secret soft strategy. And so it's going to be, you know, it's going to change across the board and production results are going to change over time and people have to learn. Um, and it takes time and it is an expensive business. I mean, we're talking, you know, uh, just a few years ago, these were on average at least 10, $10 million a well. So that's how you're testing and learning and it is expensive. But I would say, you know, from a longevity standpoint of the Permian, those wells are not typically 10 million now. They're, they're less than that. Um, the laterals are longer and the consistency in the production performance is pretty strong. Um, so we, and I would say not necessarily, we're going to see massive changes in, in, you know, increased production out of these wells, but I think, you know, being able to tweak, you know, is it a hundred foot? Do we decrease that spacing 50 foot, a hundred foot? Those modest tweaks, um, can add up to quite a bit or those modest changes in, in completion techniques and everything can add up to quite a bit. And I don't know if that's, you know, necessarily for every single company, but I think over time, that's still something that's, I feel like we're still very much in the early innings. You're, you're right. There's a lot of companies that are looking into those kinds of tweaks. I was going to mention Reveal Energy Services has done a lot of those work, has done a lot of that work as well in trying to figure out your stage spacing, trying to figure out your, your cluster spacing, what kinds of tweaks you can make to improve the production or to improve the parent child, uh, to improve that parent child mitigation too from a, from a completions standpoint. So yeah, no, I'm, I'm in complete agreement with you on that. Yeah. And I, I think overall for me, it's that, you know, it's it's really because a lot of folks, you know, and if you're thinking about how does Saudi Arabia look at this, I mean, truthfully, there's some folks within OPEC that need to listen to this podcast because I think that they probably, you know, they they don't appreciate how quickly things change. Um, one of the other things I was going to mention, and and I'll be getting into this, uh, I'll be actually at Liberty Oil Field Services in a, um, next week on September 9th, sitting down with with Chris Wright. Um, at their event with the Denver Petroleum Club. So shout out to that. Register with the Denver Petroleum Club for this this event. Um, but, you know, it was interesting because one of the things that was surveyed at this workshop was what are, what are the big things that are game changing? And I knew that it was going to be Simulfrax and everybody said Simulfrax, that that was going to be one of the biggest you know kind of step changes. And I thought that was really interesting because that's not like the super, you know, that's not some technical little mitigation, you know, cluster space or anything. It's literally you know, it's, it's dual frack, it's fracking two wells at once or to some form of fracking two wells at once. It's not just zipper fracking or, or, or simultaneous operations, but it is literally, you know, depending on how many pressure pumps and stuff you have simul fracking. And I thought that that was a very impressive that that was of all the folks in the room and the engineers in the room, that that was one of the answers. Um, and I completely agree with it, but I do think it's something that the market is not appreciating, The the overall market is not appreciating that what that means. Um, and not just for 
services and the intensity and the demand for sand and fluid water and everything, but it's just literally how many wells you can punch out. And I think, I think from a data side, I'm kind of fascinated if you're, if you're doing these wells at once, the types of data we're going to be pulling and thinking about and analyzing, it is going to, in, I assume it's going to help us inform a lot on, on if we weren't doing this before and we're doing this now, we're going to have more data and different data sets of how these wells are talking to each other, um, especially if we're, if we're fracking them, you know, at the same time. And I think that that could be, you know, that's going to be an evolutionary thing that's going to be very cool to see that data um, and how that unfolds and you know, how we're completing these wells two, two years from now. Oh, I'm, I'm in agreement with you on that as well. I think, especially with the kind of technology, the question, the one of the survey questions, the kind of technology that was asked was what kind of technology is going to is is going to make a breakthrough in the next few years? And you're right about Simulfrac was one of the was one of those technologies. We're trying to be more creative with the goal of being cost conscious as companies go. We're trying to be more creative, not just from the downhole standpoint, but also operationally. So there's been definitely some some great, uh, there's definitely been some great studies that have been done with Simulfrac. There's, I'll send, I don't actually remember the paper, but there's a great earth tech paper that Chevron gave and it's called the, like, sim, like the journey through Simulfrac. So if you, um, I, I'll go ahead and send that over to you, but there's a, there's a, there's a paper that talks about how Simulfrac was a success in the Permian by improving your transition times, by improving your costs, and by increasing your and by in, uh, being able to reach the rates that you've been able to reach even with your traditional super fracking. So yeah, no, that's that's awesome. And I missed I didn't miss the EarthTech event because um, I had a family reunion in, in uh, up near Mount Rushmore, so I missed that. But I heard that was pretty, and that was from this year, right? Yes. Yeah. So I mean, I think that that's the the Simulfrac. It's very new. Um, and it's it's not well understood. And even I'm I've been was talking to my my dad about it and my uncle who you know had worked um as consultants with EOG several years ago. And I mean, I, I've been talking about it with other people, and it's it's not something well. It's not well understood. It's it's certainly not well appreciated. When we're looking at the frac spreads and we're saying you know Primary Vision saying you know 250 frac spreads or whatever it is, that number to me is not probably incredibly accurate. Um, especially if you're trying to map that against the rig count, because the rig count's not even perfectly accurate anymore, because you're just doing so much more with less. And I think the frac spreads are, are that is are the same with that. All very good to me from a the resiliency standpoint of the industry, especially the Permian and where it's going. And actually, we're seeing it across. You know, we're seeing it across basins. And um, and not to switch gears completely, I just want to hone in this one thing because you mentioned the frac hits being positive in the beginning, and I think that there were two at least two presentate like. It wasn't necessarily the great, there was a presentation by Great Western, which was awesome. Uh, the young yeah. woman there just did a fantastic job explaining what Great Western was doing here in the DJ. And, you know, I'm going to try to get her on the podcast and talk about that as well. Um, but the other one, the, the young woman from, uh, a lot of really great young women engineers that were killing it at this, yeah. at this, at this event, but um, from Alter Resources on the, and it was really the positivity in, in essence of the frack hits you know, of, of refracking, you know, these wells in the Marcellus. And that to me also from the refracking side, and I think I made some very public comments at this, at this workshop of, you know, there's a lot of longevity to this, you know, these plays and these reservoirs that were, you know, really not just because you guys may not be thinking about refracts right now, but it's something that's, you know, all this data, all this stuff on cyber, all this data that you're accumulating will eventually inform that. And at, at some point, Folks will be like, yes, we're going to go back to those reservoirs, whether it's refracking them or it's other form of enhanced oil recovery or, or CO2, whatever it is. It's something in the back of a lot of folks' mind and certainly probably in the back of public companies as well. 
I agree about that as well. There are definitely some technologies that that are mentioned right now, but we need to we need to move at that we need to move at that pace or we it, it really is up to the company depending on where they are in their inventory or where they are in their stages of development to where they can start thinking about whether it's refracts, whether it's enhanced oil recovery or the the, the the technologies that you that you mentioned. So it really is dependent on what stage the company's in with respect to their stage of with respect to their stage of development. But I agree that once the technology and the investment into the infill wells or these child wells are are focused on, then people will start thinking about rethinking about the completions that they've done previously and think about how can you optimize production in those particular on those particular completions. And the other thing is being proactively setting up your wells to where in the event that you need to do those technologies, whether if it is EOR or whether if it is or whether if it is refracking, to make sure that you've set up your your well bore or you set up your completions to where you aren't going to hinder that you're going to limit yourself to not doing any of those things. Yeah. And I, I did think it was interesting because I think about it from a, just a, a, a super a nerdy econ and business standpoint is just that, you know, some companies could be proactive enough to where, and I know, you know, when it comes to SEC filings and reserves and everything, we don't, we're not quite there. And I thought that the presentation at the end on Refrax was, was, there were certain things accurate about it and certain things not accurate. And I was clarifying to the group afterward that, you know, it, w- just what you said just now, the, the, where you're at in business, every operator is different. Every operator has an individual perspective. And, you know, I study that on a different level from, you know, public trends, SEC filings and and operator earnings calls down to the data of, you know, what operators are actually doing and their differences. And there are a number of reasons why companies will prioritize things that they're different stages of their development. They have different management teams. They have, you know, different holders that, you know, that they're beholden to a number of different things. But the ability to sort of uh, look forward and say, I know I'm not getting all the oil out now. And what are the low cost things I can do to sort of whether or not I want to, I could sell this asset, refract it down the road, somebody could refract, somebody could do CO2 flood, whatever it is. I, I think that that that's not, hasn't even been discussed and is certainly something that, um, and I think it's game changing because, you know, uh, folks abroad and particularly, you know, in OPEC often talk about their reserves, you know, and how much they have in the longevity. And they do have a lot. Um, and they're actually going after unconventionals. And there's a, there's gonna, there's a lot of unconventionals in, in the Middle East. But I don't know if they appreciate the depth of the inventory really in the U.S. Um, and that it is, you know, the Permian is this gift that keeps on giving. And truthfully, the Bakken is the gift that keeps on giving. And where you found oil before, you find it again. And that's going to be no different here. It's like, well, we only got, you know, we're in single digits for the percentages of what we're recovering. And certainly I think we're, you'd probably agree, maybe you don't, that we're getting more out now. But there's probably a long way to go. Of, could you technically get more out? And I like to remind folks of like, you know, the old papers from, you know, um, was it Lee, Lee Price from, you know, yeah. Wilson Basin. Those were from the 70s that talked about the billions of barrels in the Bakken. And, and, you know, I, I don't know if we're dissimilar from that now of saying we know we have a ton of oil down there. We're still not getting it all out. And it's not some newfangled gadget or gizmo that's going to get out. It's it's a better and it could be cameras and different things, but it's a more intense a holistic understanding of the reservoir and the tweaks and the low cost tweaks to actually get more out. And that to me is, you know, from a like blow your mind, a game changing standpoint together. I, th- I think that's those could, that has a huge impact on, you know, the longevity of, of these oil plays. I agree to that as well. The only thing I'm going to add to that is 
Permian basins, whether if it's Midland or Delaware, Delaware basin, multi-stack or it's a, it's a stack play. And the fact that there are so many billions of barrels of recoverables to the fact that we have single percentages of recovery factors means that there's a lot of work for us that needs to be done in terms of how do we get that production. There's, I mean, what I'm saying is there's actually, there's a lot of job security, especially, uh, especially in the unconventional space. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's a great, a really great point. And I appreciate you doing that. Well, we're sort of coming up on this 55 minute right there. Many things, and I probably our listeners probably don't want to get into stage spacing and cluster spacing at this at this level. And I may, you know, I would love to. I'll probably ask to have you back on the other podcast, or maybe we'll do like a a twenty minute nerd segment on just talking about um, completions. I might get some. We could actually get some of these other um, engineers as well. But it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, you're extremely knowledgeable. You know the. You know your your company and your business really well. Um, and I appreciate having you. And I will shout out and ask, you know, I will poke you to ask your, um, you know, your executives uh, endeavor that I would love to, I would love to, and I know, I think you mentioned some of these guys have done other podcasts to the extent that they'd be open. I'd love to have them on the podcast and I'd love to talk shop. And if I'm in Midland, I'm going to invite myself to a field visit if you guys will have me. Well, sure. I'll definitely talk to our executives in terms of their in, their, in their willingness to, to join you on the podcast, but definitely been a pleasure. It's been a great conversation, especially with the workshop and what we've done as a company. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And we'll talk to you soon. Bye.